Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to Characters on the Couch. I'm Jordana Horn, and I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Adam Stern. Hi there. This week, we're going to be talking about the series The Gilded Age. For those of you who haven't seen it, it wrapped up its first season pretty recently, and it's on HBO Max. And it's, uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, Adam. I, I would say it's a its a deep dive into, spoiler from the title, The Gilded Age. But So it takes place 100 years ago in old New York, and it's about all the people who are kind of scrambling to find their place on the social and economic ladder. Yeah, my experience of it just as a viewer right from the very beginning was looking at this and saying, this feels so familiar because it it seems very similar in in the way it's written, the way it's stylized uh, to Downton Abbey, mm. which was in my, as it as you watch this show, it becomes more and more apparent. This is a very much Americanized version of that show, and with that Americanization, it sort of became about different things. Right, right, and and Julian and Julian Fellows is is the puppeteer, I guess, behind, behind the scenes of this whole thing. But yes, there's the whole upstairs downstairs factor where you know we're looking at not only the people who are having their elegant multi silverware place settings in luncheon with their friends families and nemeses but also we go down to the kitchen where we see the infighting among the staff and the right. jockeying for position and favor and it's le- it's a little less about that i think than downton abbey was mm-hmm. and a little more focused on the upstairs than the downstairs also the outfits <laughs> phenomenal phenomenal mm-hmm. it makes me very glad that i am sitting watching these people in corsets as i am in my sweatpants right on the couch right thankful for the era into which I was born because mm-hmm. yeah although there there are some moments that I think one moment for me that was particularly revelatory about the mood of the entire the entire series and then we can go into more character-based mm-hmm. discussion is that there's this one scene that I actually think is probably to, in my mind the best scene in the entire series is when they are electrifying the New York Times building. Mm. And so people gather on the street, the wealthy gather in their carriages with the picnic hampers prepared by the servants with the full mm-hmm. silverware and everything, as one does. Mm-hmm. And people are gathered in the street at night 
waiting to see the building be lit up from the bottom floor all the way to the top. And um, Thomas Edison is there and they see when it happens, this, the expressions that are revealed on people's faces. It's something that we take very much for granted, flicking on a light, just the shock and wonder and awe And the characters, Mrs. Russell Mm -hmm. has a little discussion where she's like, you know, like you can't stop the progress of people Mm -hmm. that, and I'm misquoting her, but that's the general ethos of what things are changing. Yeah. Things are changing. Things are changing. You you don't really have a choice. You know, here you are and you can either see it and marvel at it and go with it and invest heavily in electricity (laughs) or not. But to me, I thought that was a very telling moment of they're at this moment of liminality in America and in Mm -hmm. New York. And so to go into it for some of you who haven't yet seen it, the story, um, the focal point from which the story begins is the the very old tried and true conflict between old money and new money. <laughs> yep. So there's old money New York represented by the Astor family mm-hmm. and the society in which they allow only those of our kind into the society. And then there's the new money of the robber barons. Mm-hmm. So the railroad magnate uh, made up George Russell mm-hmm. and his wife, Bertha Russell, have just constructed something that to you or I, Adam, looks more like a train station right. in a major metropolitan area, but is actually a home or or maybe a museum, maybe an art museum, right. like, you know, the Met. It's very much meant to evoke the Frick, you know, mansions in New York. Mm-hmm. And so... It's sort of a contrast between their them, the Russells, and their across-the-street neighbors, the mm-hmm. Van Rines. So there are two women who live together. They are sisters. And Adam, why don't you talk a little bit about the sisters? Yeah, so Agnes Van Ryan is... Uh, by all accounts, the more dominant of these two sisters. And it's because she married into wealth or, you know, they were they were all wealthy, but her marriage allowed the wealth to continue and sort of reserves the place in high society for both her and her sister, her sister Ada. And the dynamic between them is really interesting where uh, because Agnes is the placeholder for their position in society... Cynthia Nixon, who, uh, excuse me, Ada, who's played by Cynthia Nixon, you know, defers to her in almost all regards, except, you know, sort of privately and in secret when she, when they're assisting their niece who who comes to stay with them after her niece's father, uh, the niece's father passes away. And this uh, niece who, you know, comes to live with them has no money herself. And there's another sort of struggle there of how important is it to someone who comes from a, a, a high society family with no money to remain part of high society versus how important is it to follow your dreams, follow love. This is a young woman played by Louisa Jacobson, a uh, young Marion Brooke. And so a lot of the show is seen through her eyes as well. Uh, by the way, also, she happens to be Meryl Streep's daughter. Which I, I know. I did not. Later. Exactly. We, I feel like most of the people who watch this show found that out. They said something's a little familiar about this woman. Exactly. And then about halfway through the show, somehow they read it or, or uh, you know, they, they notice, oh, that's uh, Meryl Streep's daughter. Yeah. Yes. So, so Marion Brooke comes into their house 
and she has lost her father. I don't know if we ever really found out like what the, the mother's right. been gone for a long time. So mm-hmm. she's alone in the world. And now she's coming to her aunt's house. There's more than enough room for her in, in mm-hmm. the aunt's house. It is a very big, I don't know, sort of like mahogany dust covered mm-hmm. sanctuary, uh, you know, temple to old New York. There's no modernity creeping in there mm-hmm. in any sense. Agnes has one son, Oscar Van Ryn, who is a playboy. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's very social and he's very gay. And he is, he hides his, he hides his sexual identity. Right. He has a, a serious lover who it turns out is actually the descendant of uh, former president John Quincy Adams. But oh, I, mean, I, um, I missed he, that. That was like a little aside. I was like, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so, but they keep that very much on the down low, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. totally on the down low. And he's, you know, oh, he's a rakish bachelor, you know, he'll yeah. settle down one day. So now right. he's, but he's sort of, I don't know. He's kind of like this lukewarm villain because he's right. He's conniving. Uh, He's trying to just very casually explain to his lover, you know, it's okay. I'll just get married to this wealthy woman across the street, but we'll still do our thing. You know, Uh, like like, I won't have any impact on our relationship. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, so he's making, he decides that maybe a good target for his marriage of convenience would be Gladys Russell, the Mm. young daughter of the Russells across the street. Of course, his mother doesn't even want to deign to speak to the Russells. So mm-hmm. it's interesting how that hurdle will be will be vaulted. So I guess I want to start with I want to start with the idea of intransigence, right? Mm-hmm. Because Agnes Van Ryn clings on to this old society model mm-hmm. like with the ardor of I don't know, like a crusader. Mm-hmm. She is so, and it's not just the vehemence that we found kind of adorable in Maggie Smith, you know, right. of like the classist vehemence, but also this vehemence that like, yeah, the people across the street, like this fervent opposition mm-hmm. to new money, the suspicion of anyone who you don't already know for generations coming into your circle at all, like even into your drawing room, much less your bedroom. Right. What is that? Right. I think that that existed for centuries, right, before our lives. And so before the modern era, I think that that was almost like the standard in terms of royalty, in terms of classes across societies, across the globe, right? And so Agnes is coming from that world where everything is theirs, right? And and they are atop the world. And so when everything is yours, all you have is to lose. You don't have anything Mm. to gain by sharing, right? right? And so I think that is probably the basis for where her character is coming from is, and she's probably seen, not probably, I think they really do allude to several characters who have lost their place in society. Mm. And, you know, so, sometimes it's even in tragic circumstances because of bad financial decisions and that leads to, again, all of this is spoiler alert, but, you know, leads yes. to a suicide in one case. And and that uh, widow is is sort of left out now from for the rest of her life from, from a certain uh, degree of that society. So 
I think it's largely out of fear that she's not more welcoming. No, um, that's so true. And and when you talk about, but it's so interesting to me because here you have someone like Mrs. Chamberlain, right? Mm. She's this character who is completely ostracized. She's she's um, she had a she's the second wife of a wealthy, very wealthy guy, obviously, mm. and she became pregnant while he was married to wife one. Mm -hmm. And that scandal alone was enough to just put her on the outs forever. So I just love how you go into her apartment and her apartment makes the Metropolitan Museum Mm -hmm. of Art look like a dump. She's got (laughs) like a Degas, you know, just like outside of her bathroom. She's got Monet's just, the the hall is dripping with impressionist classics, you know, that they just like picked up at a little sale in Paris, whatever. But but none of that is enough. And she's a very kind person as we find out over the course of this. But she, talking to her, looking at her, any of that is anathema to these people. Right. Yeah. And and I feel like when Agnes tries to sort of steer her niece, Marion, towards society and say, look, you need to make these uh, wise decisions. You can't just marry the first uh, man that you have a crush on, you know, basically. Um, it's because she looks at that character and says, don't become like her. You know, you can't uh, look at all you have to lose. You'll be a pariah if you follow right, your but what about the whole? What about the whole idea that like, yeah, well, in large part, that person's a pariah because of you. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like you made this, right? You know? So what about that? Like, in other words, yeah. if someone were, and this is a point, actually, this is where I think that this is probably the reason why Mrs. Russell resonates m- most with me. Mrs. Russell, first of all, she's a woman who like will not take no for an answer, which respect. <laughs> I, I, to- I totally love that. But there's no one who's more dogged about wanting to be, you know, at this top level of society than Mrs. Russell. She is so vehement. She pursues it in every single thing that she does. She's extraordinarily strategic to the point where she doesn't want, she wants to sort of play her children's Mm -hmm. social relationships to be of the best social benefit possible. In the meantime, she came from nothing. Mm -hmm. And so now she's And now she's something, but no one is willing to acknowledge that she's something. Right. And let me, if I may, just sort of talk about the the Russell family at large. It's such an interesting dynamic to me because she has a one-track mind. She's determined to get into high society. She's going to use her children in any way possible. She's going to, you know, connive and get in with uh, various uh, influencers of the day. Not not so much on Instagram, but, you know, uh, uh, the people who who go to Newport and and, uh, stay in mansions there. And uh, meanwhile, her husband, he could not care less about acceptance into society, right? Her husband seems to truly and deeply love his wife. And yet, played by Morgan Spector really, really well, I think, he's he's a single-minded business man. You know, he's, he's, he's made a fortune not because uh, out of kindness or out of a need for acceptance. He's made a fortune because he was determined to, you know, make a fortune and do whatever it takes to do that. What I find so interesting is if you look at the whole cast of characters, it seems like almost the two that are most well-adjusted, that where, where this is not so much, where they've figured out, at least in their young life, a way to navigate this is first their son, uh, Larry Russell. He 
doesn't want to be like either of his parents and wants to be an architect because right. he, and he actually says this to his father. If I'm, if I go into your business, I'll be just like you, a worse version of you basically, because no one could live up to the example that you've set. He wants to make his own path. And, and, uh, the daughter just wants to be a person, you know, that's allowed to live in the world. It's so right. sad. And she really isn't like she has, I mean, up until almost toward the very end, she has a governess who's really like much more of a minder, right? right. Because she's not, she's not actually t- teaching her. I think she's just sort of like her um, walking handcuff around the streets of New York, making, you know, reporting back to the mom on all the people that she speaks to and the things that she does. And yeah, that's, um, it is remarkable that the two of them are so normal. Mm -hmm. Can can we use the word normal in a conversation with a psychiatrist? Is that that acceptable? We we use common a lot, you know, like, oh, those problems are very common. Okay, that's good. That's good. But well-adjusted, well-adjusted is my favorite phrase for uh, when, 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 when I might want to say normal. Um. And so what, so what, how do they, how did they get to be as well-adjusted as they are in light of parents, single-minded pursuits of things that have really nothing to do with them? Do you, is it an implicit advocacy of benign neglect? That's that's such a great, interesting question because now that you ask it, I think back and how many scenes were there where there four of them are sitting around at the dinner table having conversation and, you know, so these are not uh, little, little kids. These are uh, young adults. I mean, the, the, the girl Gladys might be in her teens, but it, it seems like Larry's sort of like a college age kid right. and they're they've picked up on the positive qualities of their parents much more than the negatives, I would say. Maybe they've seen the negatives as what they are. So I I think, I don't know, I think that sometimes uh, you do just sort of get lucky in that way. And, you know, just before we... I I, want to talk about Peggy Scott because she's another well-adjusted character, but let's circle back to her because we we can't leave the Russells without talking about, well, lots of things, but one of them being Turner, one of the employees of the house and the moves that she makes uh, in, in order to try to get into, literally into Russell's bed, into George Russell's bed, I should say. Right. And this idea that she has that, you know, I don't belong here in the downstairs. I belong in the upstairs, which is actually a a reflection of how the current Mrs. Russell does feel. Right. right? She's like, I don't belong on the outside of society. I belong right in the thick of it. Right. So in the sense, they're both linked in the sense of their ambition, Mm -hmm. but Turner vastly underestimates the focus, I think, of Mr. Russell and how he's really like, I'm all about my business. I adore my wife, you know, just to the sun, moon and stars. And I'm not really interested in like anything else other than that. But I, but I thought that was a very interesting way of, so she comes into his bed topless Mm -hmm. and then he just sort of like sends her packing and he doesn't fire her because he's like, well, that's going to like rock the boat with my wife too much. Right. And she'll have she, to wor- she works as his wife's lady's maid. Exactly. Right? So the person who, you know, puts on your necklaces and brushes, I mean, relatable content people, mm-hmm, of course. right? This is what, this is what people do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know, you know, it's, she, it, she underestimates his affection for her, but it's really not, so much about Mrs. Russell. I think that they've sort of 
it's it's like a mutual admiration. I think both of them, both Russell parents, admire the hell out of the way that each one of the other is just an unstoppable force. Right. I think that they love that about each other Mm -hmm. because I really, you know, I didn't think it was so much about like what was so wonderful about his wife. Mm-hmm. It was more that he's like, no, this is like, this is the path I've chosen. Like, yep. you're not going to get me to choose a different path. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. became a power play rather than anything else. Right. You're right. That's the thing that the two of them have most in common is just like a dogged determination to get what they want, you know? And they, they're totally diametrically opposed things that they want, but they support each other. It's almost like um, a wonderful modern definition of marriage in terms of like supporting your partner, even when the thing that, that your partner is after isn't important to you, you know? Right. And I feel, and I feel like there's a recurrent theme in their conversations and in all their interactions, which, you know, she'll say, this is very important to me. And he'll mm-hmm. be like, well, uh, whatever works for you is right. what I want. Right. And then yeah. often he'll sort of secretly use his power and influence to try to make it happen or, you know, she'll, uh, and, and vice versa. So that, that, that 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 pair, you know, that marriage of the Russells is really interesting. I, I almost feel like it's one. I mean, this is a real true ensemble, but it's one of the core elements of the show. That without without the two of them and how different they are, but how they work together, the show might not work as well. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Peggy Scott, because I also think she is really well-adjusted, but she's trying to... So this is a young African-American woman who is you know, we learn more and more about as the show goes forward. There's a lot of mystery about what her secrets are in the early episodes. And, you know, uh, uh, without getting into too many of the details, I'll, I'll just say that she's trying to both make it, you know, as a writer, which which is at, at that time, being an African-American woman, it can be an incredibly daunting task, I'm sure. And she's trying to also navigate these trying di- uh, family dynamics that she has. What was your sense of like all of that, the father and the mother and and her life in Brooklyn and the whole, you know, everything? There was such a, an important scene when she goes to visit her family. She goes to visit her parents in Brooklyn, Peggy. And 
Marion follows her. Oh, yeah. So non-consensually follows her Mm -hmm. and is invited into the home. And it's very clear. It's cringingly clear that Marion has made assumptions about Peggy's family Peggy's family is very well off. They're living in like, you know, what today would be like easily a $20 million brownstone, like in, you know, Park Slope or whatever, like a very fancy neighborhood. And Marion has brought in her bag a pair of old shoes to give to Peggy as a, as a charity charity gift. And that offends all of them so much. And Peggy just kind of lays down the law and says like, you don't know anything about me. Right. Like we're not friends. Right. You know, and you wanted this position of being my benefactor of being, mm-hmm. you know, this kind she's like, girl, I'm the one who helped you. Right. You I gave the you the money station. at the train station. You didn't have a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. I paid for your ticket. Yeah, like, I love, I love you know, that. I love that. I love that too. Like, and, and she's like, literally like, like how could that have happened? Yeah. And you still don't get it. Yeah. Like, and you're still so set in your ways. And I thought, I didn't think that that lesson really took, I mean, she gave mm-hmm. like a sort of like, I'm sorry kind of right. thing. But I thought that was a real, like pulling up the drawbridge. That was a great Peggy. moment. Yeah. And, um, and a reflection of, of implicit bias, even in a good character, you know, in a character who we're supposed to be rooting for and that kind of thing. One thing I, I want to relate as well is, you know, we've talked a lot about Agnes Van Ryan as sort of set in her ways in high society and really rigid, but she's one of the only people that seems to admire Peggy for her merit, you know, like, well, not the only people at the the newspaper for sure. But, you know, Agnes hires Peggy as a secretary to help her sort of pay the bills and have a place to live while she's trying to make it as a writer. And it doesn't seem like charity to me. It seems like Agnes has no bias, you know, or has no obvious bias toward this woman uh, and just really appreciates the work that she's doing and the talent that she she must have. So well, I thought that's that really was- true. And that actually made me in a weird way kind of uncomfortable because, uh, because this is not a show where, uh, I don't know if it's the pandemic or, you know, my age and my laziness or what, like, sometimes I just want villains. I want like unadulterated uh-huh. bad people. I want to be able to be like, you're bad. Uh-huh. And so Agnes is like really uptight and really like ridiculous in her. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, she, she like blows off her butler for like, she's, you know, right. talking to her, like her butler, like talking to Ada, like, Ada, will you please tell him <laughs> that, that, I mean, like in a very like total second grade move, you right. know, like after he slighted her by serving across the going street, across the yeah. street, exactly. And helping out the neighbor, like at a right. time when she had no other expectations of him at all. Right. Okay. But you're right. Her, she, is very respectful of Peggy. She, you know, and I think maybe it's because by virtue of Peggy being black, like they're on such, in such different portions Mm. of society. Like it's not an issue. Peggy's not a threat Mm -hmm. in the same way that Marion marrying poorly as a threat Mm. Mm -hmm. or in like making the wrong choice about the nouveau riche is a threat. Right. That's interesting. And so that's, I think it's, 
In a weird way, I actually think that that's what Marion with the shoes, the the ridiculous gesture Mm -hmm. and the offensive gesture with the shoes was trying to sort of childishly imitate the way in which Agnes is trying to be welcoming, but it was a poor imitation that didn't go to the substance. And it shows, I think it spoke more to Marion's, as you point out, to her biases and to her just, it shows that Marion is, is not someone that we can count on to make the right decisions as we see see. with, with uh, Mr. Rakes. So Mr. Rakes is this lawyer who helped her with her father's non-existent estate. estate. And then Mr. Rakes shows, I mean, his name is literally Rake. Like, (laughs) like he shows up in, in Manhattan and he's, courting Marion. But in the meantime, like everybody's seeing him like at the opera and around town, like squiring around all these other, you know, rich single girls with potential. Mm -hmm. And yet Marion seems to think like, oh yeah, this guy, man, he's it for me. I'm like, this is literally the only guy you've ever talked to. In a show that is full, literally filled to the brim with social climbers, you know, he is the most egregious offender in terms of like, you know, he, his version of the American dream is sneaking into the opera, basically, you know, it's, it's a really, and then of, of course, you know, he reveals Marion to be as, you know, I, I don't know, I hate to even say it, but like naive about love and romance and, and marriage and society as she is, even though again, she's, she's our character, you know, she's the character that we're, I think, meant to root for and, you know, yeah, I find her super exasperating. I gotta say, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I just find her like so irritating and I, I, I know, I know I'm supposed to like, she's supposed no, to I be mean, maybe I'm a girl. I, I could be misreading it, you know, no, I maybe. think you're right. I think, you know, you bring, you bring, cause we came in right to the series with this introduction of she's the one who brought us in here. Right. Yeah. So, right. She's, so that's how we started everything. But in the meantime, like, but how, how about a, a heel turn? If she, you know, like you're saying, there's no obvious villain. Wouldn't it be wonderful if next season somehow she was like, uh, became, you know, vengeful and, you know, like, I, know, I don't know. She's, she's just not like, she's not calculating enough or smart yeah. enough. Like, I feel like it's much more likely. And, and also I will say that as likable as Larry and Gladys are, they're really like, they're kind of clueless as well. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they're, they're just sort of like bumbling around, like right. going right. with the flow, not really. And, and Gladys, if anything is like, she's aware that she's being used and she finally was what made the, the end game, you know, what made Mrs. Russell win and, and eventually have the beloved Mrs. Astor mm-hmm. grace her doorstep <laughs> and come into her ball. Right. But tell me about like, like, I want you to, so I'm going to ask you to put Agnes mm-hmm. on the couch and Ada because that relationship seems from the layperson's view to be very dysfunctional, but I'd like to hear just a little bit about the, the psychology and like what, what makes people want to be at the top of the social ladder so badly. Yeah. Like who I think, cares? I honestly, I think it all stems from a certain degree of 
tribalism that we we have, you know, hardwired into us from millennia of, you know, living in communities. Um, and certain communities have more power and influence. And if you're at the top of the the chain, then or mixing metaphors maybe, but you're, you know, you have more influence, you have more resources, you have more power, your life is better, right? And so every character in the show, from from upstairs, downstairs, from across the street on Fifth Avenue to the other side of Fifth Avenue, it's all about how can you improve your position if you know in in, in a version of the American dream, right? Now the psychology of that, yeah, I think it's it's uh, we're all sort of in a blank slate sort of way. We're all born into certain circumstances that are out of our control, and at least in this era. You know, this show is portraying the human desire for self-improvement, but not internal self-improvement, much more external, you know, how can I improve my circumstances? And even the, the show is titled The Gilded Age. It's sort of like, I know that era is referred in that way, but it's sort of almost a double entendre. It's like, how can, you know, it, it's as though the, the center of everyone's life is where they are in this uh, social strata as opposed to who they are. And, you know, you, you mentioned getting Agnes and Ada and the therapist, you know, a little family therapy for them. Mm-hmm. I think that for the two of them, the work would largely be about acknowledging the inherent love that they probably have for each other. It seems pretty clear that they go back decades as sisters and that before they before they got married before one of them got married and the other didn't you know there was there had to have been mutual respect and what's happened over decades now is that uh, Agnes has ended up in this position of authority Ada who seems frankly just as smart and interesting had this position of uh, submissiveness all because of who's controlling the purse strings, you know, who's, who's actually in control of the money. And it's interesting because Agnes made the choices that she did in order to secure that position. It's sort of alluded to that she made those choices not out of love, that she didn't, you know, she had to sort of put up with her husband, right, uh, it sounds right. like. And Nobody misses him that much. Right. It seems <laughs> like, yeah, no one's, no one is mourning the, the loss whenever it occurred. And, but the two of them now living together, they don't have to have this dynamic, you know? And so for me, I think the family therapy would be aimed primarily at having them try to interact with each other as in, in the way that they may have before, you know, that, that division happened before that, the, the marriage happened before this was the primary motivating factor, trying to recapitulate how they were as, as kids, even, okay. um, that would be my first sort of instinct. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I, I also think that the two of them, so in thinking about Agnes, this is going to be a weird analogy that I feel fairly certain has not been, uh, said up to this point, I see a little bit of Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof <laughs> in Agnes, this clinging to a way of life that is disappearing right? and a vehement clinging, like your entire identity is based mm-hmm. in this thing that like you're on the tail end of. Right. And I'm, sh- and I feel that there are a lot of people actually who are in that position all over people who, you know, they feel the world, like when you get to a certain age, right. The world, whether it's your social world or maybe the world of your career, right. Maybe you mm-hmm. spent your whole time on, you know, doing something that now the technology is outdated or, right. you know, a- any number of things. What do you say to someone who's coping with such a dramatic paradigm? Shift? Right. Yeah. I think sometimes 
there are things where you can say, that's a part of my life I can just not uh, engage in. And then there are certain things, certain trends within society that you just can't ignore, that you'll get left behind if you start to ignore. So, I mean, one example in our lifetime about this, anyone listening to this podcast on uh, the World Wide Web, so to speak, uh, you know, it was the internet, right? So I'm reading this book uh, by Chuck Klosterman in the 90s. And he basically says, in the 90s, when the internet came out, you were one of three groups. Either you were in the group that existed before the internet and after, like you and me, Jordana, or you were in the group that existed after and it's just a part of your life. But what's almost most fascinating are the people who existed before the internet and never, you know, chose to never adopt any aspect of it. No smartphones, no emails, nothing, you know, and those people to some degree they might be happier. I don't know, but they are left behind. Right. Who can get in touch with them? Nobody. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're sitting by their landline waiting for the phone to ring and it's not happening. Just but reading I, their paper copy of the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting thinner and thinner every, every week, right. but they're still reading it cover to cover every day. Anyway, so I, that's what I see. When I look at this show, it's almost like I see a version of that happening. And Agnes is one of these people that just says, I'm not using the computer to connect on the, you know, like she she looks at right. it and says, this is not the society I want to live in. Right. And but in therapy, what do you what do you say to people who, you know, are so governed by fear? Right. It might be a slow, methodical breaking down of the behaviors first. You know, if you think about how thoughts and emotions and behaviors are all relate to each other, you might actually get them to identify that, all right, I know how you feel about this issue, but if you actually behaved in a different way, maybe the outcome would be something that would make you feel better. You know, and that kind of sort of leading someone along in a way that will be adaptive as opposed to maladaptive. Right. Yeah, Agnes doesn't seem particularly uh, inclined to no. adapt, but she does show up. Right. And, you know, as as we talked about last time with Miss Maisel, Mrs. Maisel, I don't think Agnes would sign up for therapy very, very quickly. Right? Don't you find... Yeah. So that not that so interesting? The people who need it most. Hmm. Yeah. Good thought. Okay, Jordana. <laughs> I've, as always, this has been our delight, and I really love talking to you about these characters. Same. Yeah, same. And I know you have your caveat that you need to give. Absolutely. Please be advised that Characters on the Couch is a show focused only on fictional people, and none of the content should be considered medical or professional advice in any way. If you or someone you know is struggling with your mental health, please seek out professional consultation. Thank you. Thanks so much, and we'll see everybody next week. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.